to the prophecy, the vision of Isaiah, I invite your attention again this Lord's Day morning to the second chapter where we'll be taking up the first five verses, Isaiah chapter 2. We've been in Isaiah for a month and a half now, but uh, having covered even just one chapter so far, we've come to expect a, a bumpy ride. Isaiah's prophecy has taken some jarring turns and has met us with some real surprises along the way. And uh, he has turned, following God's own lead in chapter 1, from terrible judgments to, to wooing invitations, from dark threatenings to, to bright promises, and that in virtually the same breath. So it, uh, it does not surprise us to be surprised as we turn and go to the next page, so to speak, of Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 2, and find that um, while we might describe chapter 1 as a generally gloomy uh, chapter on the whole, focusing more on the failure of Israel in Isaiah's day, uh, these opening verses of chapter 2 must be the breaking of light upon them. Chapter 1, we might say, was Israel as they were, and these opening verses of chapter 2 are Israel as she will be. And of course, in this description, we find ourselves in our own futures too. Isaiah 2, but first a prayer. Father in heaven, speak, we pray, for your servants are listening. Open our ears and our hearts to receive this truth, and, O oh God, to rejoice in it, and even more than that, to participate in it. We pray these things for your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall dis decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Oh, house of Jacob. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What is it that drives your life? What, what is the measurement by which you gauge your lives, dear flock? Is it how much money you have in the bank? The balance, perhaps, in your Retirement account? Is it how far you've ascended the, the corporate 
ladder or, or the level of your own comfort, the accumulation of things around you, your home and your, your stuff, stuff that makes you comfortable? Is it perhaps your family, how far your children have succeeded or, or maybe failed to thrive? What is it really, really, that makes you tick? That, uh, that gives you comfort and, and confidence in this life? Alas, I'm not even certain that my own heart is honest enough to me to admit its strengths after other things instead of its first love. Of course, it claims to delight in the Lord above all and singly in him. It has to say that it's the heart of a minister. It knows at least enough to claim that. But in the heart of hearts, in your heart of hearts, what is your chief delight, your highest goal, your greatest joy, the most important thing, the thing that moves and motivates you. I remember that very inspirational piece of music from Rogers and Hammerstein's uh, musical, or the Rogers and Hammerstein musical, I should say, The Sound of Music, entitled Climb Every Mountain. It was uh, themed as a piece to inspire uh, young people to, to pursue their dreams. Well, Israel in Isaiah's day had never heard that song, of course, but they were singing it nonetheless. They were pursuing their dreams on every mountain. And you'll understand the significance and the importance of that, of what I mean when I remind you that it was on mountains in that day that, that people pursued their gods. This is commonly seen in religions all over the world. It is widely thought, commonly thought, that the gods dwell high on the peaks and in order to appease them and curry their favor and get what you want from them, you must climb those mountains and worship them there. Your missionaries to Mexico City last summer learned the wild extent to which the ancients would go in order to build temples on high places. A nearly two-hour steep ascent on foot to dizzying heights and very thin air led us to an Aztec temple hundreds of years old at the peak of uh, Tepostico Mountain. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but to, you'll readily remember that in the Bible, Israel's neighbors did the same thing. They worshiped their, their gods on high places, and Israel joined them in their idolatry. You might remember that periods of reform in Israelitish history were measured by the destruction of or the maintenance of those high places in Israel. It's, it's at those high places that our spiritual fathers and mothers made idolaters of themselves very often. But here's the good news. The good news is that one mountain will rise Above all the rest, it will dwarf them all and it will show what their gods truly are, which is, of course, nothing at all. The holy mountain of the Lord will stand supreme. Isaiah is here prophesying a, a day in which the truth will fill all the earth, in which one true God will not only reign supreme, as indeed he already does, 
but his universal reign will be universally acknowledged. This is the picture that Isaiah draws here of, of, of streams, rivers of people that flow against gravity is the picture, a stream that goes uphill to the mountain of the Lord, to the true, the one true and living God and worship him, abandoning their own mountains to the mountain of the Lord. Now, understand that this, this picture that Isaiah draws is really a curious one and potent, particularly to the people of his immediate day. Yes, the temple was on a, a mount, but it was by no means the largest one or a particularly large or high one. The Mount of Olives to the east stood 66 meters higher than the mountain of Jerusalem. But it's also a specially powerful image because Isaiah has just finished prophesying in the last chapter that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It's going to be left like a, like what? Remember it? A shack in the middle of a cucumber field. In the ancient Near East, when a god lost his mountain, that is to say, a nation that worshipped him fell in battle, he became an inferior deity. Just one more among a crowd of little gods that couldn't protect their peoples. But that wasn't going to happen to Yahweh. He couldn't be syncretized. He couldn't be made a part of some nation's pantheon, a group of gods, because he is the living God, and he would be back. So when, this, when would this happen, this, this great rise of the mountain of God above all others? Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. But, but when are the latter days? Well, Naturally, as with so many questions in eschatology and the study of the end times, there are disagreements. But a simple inquiry of the scripture will reveal that the prophets use this term to refer to a future time that was hidden from their sight. It's used only a few times, actually, here in Isaiah, and then in the parallel passage in Micah and in Hosea. Later in the New Testament, the phrase latter days uh, is used five times. And the first Use of this phrase is by Peter on Pentecost Sunday in his sermon. He makes reference to the prophecy of Joel. He says in Acts 2, these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, Peter says. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit and all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now what is especially interesting here is that Joel did not originally say, in the last days. Peter added that part. Peter apparently considered himself to be living in the latter or in the last days. The writer of 
the book of Hebrews does the same. You might remember in his letter, he opens with the words, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Other uses of this phrase in the New Testament seem to refer to the entire epoch between Christ's ascension and his coming again, the last days in 2 Timothy 3. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days people will be lovers of themselves. And the New Testament also finds such phrases as last hour in John 6 and 1 John 2 and last time in 1 Peter 1 that clearly refer to re events that yet to take place who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed and the last time, the end of this age, the time that has not yet come. I don't want to labor the point this morning, but simply to observe that it seems plain enough that the term last days, along with its parallel phrases, is broad enough in the Bible to speak of days extending from the time of Jesus' first advent to his second coming. And it is not at all difficult to see, is it, that this prophecy of Isaiah has been coming true, has been developing since Jesus' appearance in the flesh. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached Christ to the nations who had that day streamed into, streamed up the mountain of Jerusalem for the feast, and thousands heard the gospel and believed and bowed the knee to Christ. To some degree, therefore, Isaiah's prophecy was beginning to unfold right there, some 700 years after he had made it. But the full extent of this prophecy is much broader, much more world-embracing than that. The, the, the embrace of the gospel by all the nations has yet to take place. I'm quite convinced, therefore, that Isaiah's prophecy is even now unfolding and taking shape and has been these almost 2,000 years in every day in ways that we can measure and some ways that are immeasurable. Zion, you remember, in the Bible is a picture of the entire church in the Bible. It's not limited to a hilltop in Palestine. So when the Bible speaks about the nations flowing into Zion, it means that the church of Jesus Christ will grow and grow and grow until, as Daniel has it, that mountain fills the earth. Well, look. Look at how the work of, of missions has taken and is even now taking the gospel all over the face of the globe. Of course, there are many nations, that is to say many people of different ethnic groups who have yet to receive the gospel and bow the knee to Christ. But every day, every hour, every minute, the gospel is quietly spreading and pervading its way all around the world, from one heart to another, from one place to another, throughout the whole world, the, the tendrils of the good news are making their way from nation to nation to every tongue and tribe and nation and people. They're streaming into Zion, into his church. 
Now, there are a few things that will be plainly seen, things that will mark this great stream of, of people entering God's kingdom. They'll be marked by worship. They'll be marked by obedience. They'll be marked by peace. First, they'll be marked by worship. That is, after all, what the streams that entered into the physical Zion, into Jerusalem, uh, in Palestine, were chiefly doing. They were there to worship God, as Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled. Therefore, the church will grow with genuine, spirit-filled worshipers who gather to worship God in Jesus' terms, in spirit and truth. That, after all, is what God is seeking, said Jesus to the woman at the well. Not worshipers to gather on this physical mountain or that physical mountain. That wasn't the, that wasn't the point. But to come and worship with genuine, heart-expressed, heart-engaging worship. True worship. In Isaiah's day, the, the worshipers came to Zion to worship God, but only worshipers on a more sort of local scale, the Israelites. Other nations went to their own mountains to worship their local deities. The worship of Yahweh, therefore, was, as the case virtually required, quite limited. But now, and consider this, there are churches all over the entire world this very day who are worshiping God this Lord's Day. Some of them have already worshipped. Some have already worshipped twice on this Lord's Day. Others have yet to rise under the western sky and worship God and join their voices to ours in the sanctuary. The point is, God's people are worshiping him in great numbers and a great multitude that is growing every day. Second, but not unrelated to worship, is obedience. Now listen to what the people say as they, as they flow to the church in verse 3. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. Sometimes this is hard for us to believe, isn't it? Hard for us to sort of capture this obedience because of the woeful failure of the church, particularly in our own day and place to live as distinctively obedient people, a distinctively obedient life in so many ways. We lament and lament our part in it. Christians today in America are virtually indistinguishable from the world for their behavior. We are much better at talking about living in God's ways than we are in walking in God's ways. But Isaiah's prophecy, as it is fulfilled, the commandments of God will be more scrupulously observed, and God's people will not only talk his ways, they will love his ways, and they'll love walking in his ways, in his paths more and more. We will live out of our worship not leaving our religion in the sanctuary, but taking it into the world with us. True and genuine love will be shown for neighbors. The so-called golden rule will be widely practiced, doing unto others as we would that they should do to us. 
And then third piece, verse 4. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. See, as the worship of God and as the obedience to God spread, so shall peace. Of course it will. When, when men and women learn to treat each other in accord with the law of God, when, when selfless love after the model of our own God who has sent his own son, his only begotten son, to die for us. I say when selfless love reigns, the reasons for war will disappear. Instead of arms will produce tools for agriculture, for food, the battlefield will be transformed into a garden. One can imagine God restoring the world to Eden again. Of course, none of this will happen apart from the grace of God. It must be God's work. In 1959, a bronze statue promoting the slogan, Let Us Beat Swords into Plowshares, was donated by the Soviet Union to the United Nations. Maybe you're familiar with the statue, the, the nude of the man with the sword bent and beating the sword into a plow. Its sculptor meant in that impressive statue to re represent the human wish to end wars and, and converting weapons of death into tools of life. Little do most of those at the UN understand how that statue must be to them the constant reminder of the total futility of that wish apart from the gospel. Mankind cannot accomplish this. We cannot affect peace when we are in our fallen condition at enmity with everyone, from, from God right down to our next-door neighbor. We might as well make a ladder of water to save a drowning man as put our faith in men, in leagues of men, to bring true peace. But where the gospel goes... Where the gospel goes, where knees bow to Christ, there true peace follows. All of these, in fact, worship, obedience, and peace, all of them require the supernatural work of God. Worship in spirit and truth requires the spirit. Obedience requires the one without whom we can do nothing. True peace requires the work of the Prince of Peace in the hearts of men. And all of these things, worship, obedience, and peace, require your hard work, your diligence, your efforts. This is not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and. God must give it to you to worship Him in spirit and truth. He absolutely must and you must get yourself 
and if you have won your family out of bed on the Lord's day and to his sanctuary, ready to speak to him, ready to hear from him, ready to sing and to pray and to listen from the heart and give full attention to his voice when he speaks to you. God must work in you what is pleasing to him. And you must meditate on the commandments of God and work and strive every minute to see that your, your life, your thoughts, your words, your deeds are governed by and subject to the laws and precepts of God. God must turn the hearts of men toward one another and override their enmity by his grace and we must take hold of our own hearts too. Their prejudices, their, their hatreds, their, their old hang-ups to be useful instruments of peace, of sowing love where there is hatred and pardon where there is injury. In other words, my brothers and sisters, you are to be living prophecies. You are to be a prophetic presence in this generation. You, a living embodiment and agent for bringing these prophecies into fulfillment. You see, it's not enough merely to hear Isaiah prophesy these things of worship and obedience and peace and merely to admire them and, and sort of long for the day that they're seen more widely in the world. You now, right now, bear a personal responsibility to take your part in seeing that inasmuch as it lies in you, they are fulfilled. And it begins right where you are begins in the sanctuary or you worship him from your heart, engaging in the liturgy, sharpening your senses for this conversation we have between yourselves and God in this house week after week. It begins in the church family in which you've been providentially placed, loving your brothers and sisters, looking not for conflict, but for peace not holding others at arm's length, but working toward resolution of conflict and peace by taking hold first of your own heart and this thing, your tongue, especially when they're applied to the reputations of your spiritual siblings. These are what Isaiah means when he turns to God's people in verse 5 and says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then finally, it means inviting and leading others to this life as well. Did you notice the way they, that on the way to the mountain of the Lord, what, what, what should be said? Verse 3, come, let us, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. <laughs> Christians, this, this is too great a thing. This is too marvelous, way too wonderful for us to be keeping to ourselves. 
the privilege, the joy, the, the assurance of eternal life, of, of worship, of reconciliation to God, of reconciliation to one another. This is something to be shared with others. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. John Calvin put it this way. He said, nothing could be more inconsistent with the nature of faith than the deadness which would lead a man to disregard his brethren and to keep the light of knowledge choked up within his own breast. This is something to tell others. This is something to spread far and wide. This is an invitation to extend to your neighbors, your friends, your enemies, all around you, in your own neighborhoods. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Now you know why I began this morning by asking you what it is that makes you tick, what motivates you, what drives you. What mountain are you climbing? Is it a mountain of money? Mountain of power? Prestige? Of, of fame? Of, of comfort? Of self? in whatever form, on what idol's mountain are you tempted to worship or are you worshiping? Our song, you see, is not climb every mountain. That's not our song. Rather, we say with the ancient church father, Augustine, approach the mountain. Climb up the mountain, and you that climb it, do not go back down it. For that mountain is Christ. Amen.